Welcome to HSDF the podcast, a collection of policy discussions on government technology and homeland security brought to you by the Homeland Security and Defense Forum. Today's program explores how artificial intelligence is transforming government. In part two of this four-part series, former DHS Undersecretary Reggie Brothers explores concerns on ethical and trustworthy artificial intelligence, AI governance, managing the growth of AI in government, and adversarial AI. Dr. Brothers is joined by DHS CTO David Larimore, Shawnee Spivak from the National Security Council, and Trellix Chief Policy Officer Tom Gann. This program was recorded on October 28, 2022. Shawnee, I'm going to change from the workforce to now governance. I think this is kind of one of the things you started talking about in the very beginning. From your perspective, how are you thinking about governance of AI? What are the different bins, if you will? That you're thinking about? Is there a framework? You mentioned NIST. What, how are you thinking about all this? Yeah, so there's a few kind of ways to look at this across government. One is science and technology policy recently put out a blueprint for a bill of rights, and that focuses around kind of five principles. So we, we see a lot of AI ethics principles across the board, and it is really important that departments and agencies and kind of broad government recognizes that we at least have that benchmark uh, of things we want to uh, strive towards. Now, that is kind of a handbook for, for people trying to implement these kinds of, of high-level principles. And you also have the NIST AI Risk Management Framework, and they recently are also you know, announcing the, the playbook that's going to be associated with it. You can you can find out you know, online all about this. And the good thing about both, both of these things is they've been kind of open and engaged in, with experts in academia and private sector and open for, for public comment, especially the, the NIST Risk Management Framework. And a lot of those processes welcome at, you know, input from, from users across the, across the country and the world. I think what's good about the, the playbook in particular is it starts to get more towards that implementation piece. So the, the risk management framework is, is incredibly useful to think through, you know, those high risk and, and very important processes when you're developing, you know, an AI system. And the playbook allows you to kind of work towards how you best measure that risk, you map that risk, and then you manage that risk. And there's more detail that, that will be built out from under that. But I think that's a, a good approach to, to responsible AI because, like I said, there's no one-size-fits-all. You're going to have to really think you know, critically and, and thoughtfully throughout the development process, no matter what the application is and what the context is. And one important thing, I think, is is really keeping a human-centered you know, mindset around these things, thinking about the users and the people in the, you know, the humans in the loop, the people working with a particular model or system. Make sure there's, you know, there's representation in that development process and you understand what the implications are. The big thing is, you know, in very simple terms, what, what are the implications of a false positive or a false negative? What are the implications of an error in any different system? You mentioned responsible AI. What do you, what do you, what do you call responsible AI? I mean, because the Department of Defense, you know, Secretary Austin said, we shall. We won't buy anything that's not responsible, right? They've got their pillars of responsible. How do you define responsible AI? What does that mean to you? I think for me, it's that representation. I mean, you're never going to have you know perfect balance in all systems across all of these mechanisms. So you want privacy, 
You want security, you want effectiveness in terms of low error rates, and you want equitable systems so that the error rates aren't different for different populations, for example. But it is very, very difficult to find balance across those things. So I think engaging early and often across that process in terms of you know stakeholders, you have your legal reps, your policy reps, the you know potentially user communities and the folks that are operating those systems, the folks who really understand the context in which they operate, all of that requires that conversation. It is not an easier or simple thing. So no matter what framework is out there, it'll have to be adapted in some way across these systems. And I think that's the responsible piece of it, is really taking the time and the putting in the effort. And I see a lot of government and departments and agencies doing exactly that, which has been very encouraging. That's good. Thank you. Uh, David, at DHS, how are, how are you, do you talk about responsible AI? And I know you mentioned ethics earlier. How are you thinking about, or are you guys thinking about like I said, DOD saying we're only going to buy responsible AI, right? I mean, how, how are you, are you, are you imposing those kind of constraints or how are you guys thinking about it? You know, I, I brought up the executive order. I'm going to say, well, it's lawful and respectful of our nation's values, purposeful and performance driven, accurate, reliable and effective, safe, <laughs> secure, and resilient, understandable, responsible and traceable, clearly, regularly monitored, transparent and accountable. All of those things put together. The reality is it depends, right? So when we say AI ML, we're, we're, we're talking about a broad spectrum of technologies and processes. For example, in the beginning of this discussion, I talked about one area and Shani was talking about a whole area, which I never even tend to think. And, and that is when you talk about machine learning and modeling and, and what we do for things like evaluating emergencies and doing statistical samples, like that's a whole different area of AI ML versus, you know, sentiment analysis and topic modeling, right? So, you know, you've got you've got a, a starting point and destination. There are planes, trains, automobiles, motorcycles, magic carpets, right? Star Trek transporters, like there's all of those ways to get there. Well, what is the most responsible way to get there, right? You know, what what systems are you going to put in place that meet the need? What systems are you going to put in place that allow you to safely meet that need, right? So when we talk about error rates and exception rates, right? That's a that's a real thing, right? When you look at facial recognition, there has been a lot of talk recently about I keep going back to facial recognition because it's a big thing all over the place. Yeah. A lot of collaboration with the DOJ and there's a policing executive order, et cetera. So it's always at the top of my mind, but it's it's most certainly not the only use case here. But the concept is, you know, when you are using a technology that is inaccurate, it means you could have situations where things like a a person's photo is taken and that identity is matched to uh, an incorrect identity, or it's not identified at all, or it is, it tends to be inaccurate based upon certain complexions of skin or on sex gender, right? And that's a real problem, right? That to me is where, you know, we talked, Sean talked before about, you know, civil rights, civil liberties and, and privacy and all of those issues. Like that's a clear violation. The, the irony is uh, nobody tends to question a person. Like nobody tends to question a officer at an airport or a security guard saying, you know, are you being responsible yourself? And, and we tend to look at the technology, but the same principles apply. And I think that's what's really missing is we have the principles and the structure for training, for compliance, for correcting misbehavior, uh, for measuring a person and a human in the loop. We don't have those same principles for technology. And I think that's when it comes to governance and oversight, that's essentially what we're doing. We are proving to the public that we can put that same level of governance and oversight onto the technology as you expect out of the, the people that you currently interact with. So well said. Thank you. Uh, do you think, do you see, 
So, for example, again, just my DOD background, right? So they've 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 had the Jake, the Joint AI Center, and they instituted the Chief Digital and AI Officer, right, to to try to standardize this stuff. Sean, you talk about standardization. Is is DHS? Are you thinking about those same kinds of things, or how how are you thinking about standardizing, or are you thinking about standardizing the types of AI or the verification and validation of AI, so you do indeed have responsibly and ethical behavior? There are areas where we are going a lot deeper than others, right? So again, you know, facial recognition is is a is a whole area where we are diving in incredibly deep and and have built a lot of working groups across the department. In general, you know, my responsibility, right? So you know, what I am I am focusing on is how to integrate the executive order, how to integrate the expectations for assessing these systems, for meeting the nine principles, how do we integrate that to our existing acquisition lifecycle, right? Mm -hmm. So when we look at finding a need, when we look at analyzing and selecting a technology, when we look at implementing that technology, what are the specific checkpoints in which we are verifying that a technology is purposeful and performance-driven? Where are we looking at if a technology, if AI is going to provide a safe, secure, and resilient support of the mission, et cetera? And you know, not everything can happen at the same time, right? So we have to look at certain aspects of that earlier on in the process before we start defining what are accuracy measures and how are we going to validate that and how are we going to continue to assess that, right? So that that has been the predominant push on my side because first off, we, we can't just create new governance bodies and, and get the undersecretary and, you know, S2 in, in working groups for everything because I'll have one on zero trust tomorrow and CX the day after that. And, and we will, you know, until kingdom come, there'll be in meetings for governance and oversight. So the most practical, efficient and effective method that we have is to leverage the existing processes and procedures and oversight we have in place. And so we are going through that process of the mapping, right? So so here is what OSTP provided as an example of a measure for this specific principle, right? So, you know, have have you validated against this guidelines, right? Well, where does that happen? Does that happen when I've already selected the technology? Is that when I put together my test evaluation master plan? So we're, we're starting to look at where in the life cycle of AI and ML technologies earlier on in the, you know, the uh, evaluation of the technology or, or t- sorry, I'm sorry to of uh, technology readiness level, the so lower in the technology readiness level, what are we yep. looking at versus higher in the technology readiness level, right? So that that whole sector, that's been focused, that's the big challenge, because if we can start doing that, then as AI evolves, we now have an effective model to be able to evolve with it. Thank you. Thank you. Tom, from from your perspective, right, you, you're selling into the government, right? You're selling into various agencies of, of the government who are thinking a lot about responsible AI and ethical AI and trustworthy AI and these kinds of things and cyber as well, right? How do you think about when you're developing a product? How do you think about that? Well, there's been for a number of years a discussion about security by design. It's a great concept Industrial manufacturers are progressively thinking about their HVAC systems and similar types of large scale systems from a security first point of view. You know, in the past, those systems haven't always been constructed from a security first point of view. Indeed, the same is true from a privacy point of view. I think as industry rapidly goes into AI leveraging the opportunity set, the importance is to 
think through security by design sort of in the AI sphere also. You know, AI systems are profoundly effective. They can deliver great results at scale, but hackers are also thinking about how to manipulate some of the inherent challenges in AI systems. And hackers today, you know, are already executing large scale exploits, leveraging, you know, a lot of open source technology to put in false data that fool these systems. Hackers are using AI to sped their attack models, test their best in class malware capabilities, and, you know, rapidly automate, learn from their mistakes. So it's the classic cat and mouse game that continues. And in some cases, the defenders are at a disadvantage, right? Because we have to be right all the time. And as you all know, attackers really only have to be right once or twice. So I think the charge on the private sector side is to really think through whether it's industrial control systems, whether it's cybersecurity systems, whether it's an automated driving system, to really think through scenarios, game those scenarios, and build in security right from the beginning so that we can deliver on what is still really the great promise of AI in the future. Thanks for that. Sean, I want to go back to you for a second. You'd mentioned a number of different frameworks and standards. And what do you think is missing? Because in the context of what Tom said, there's there's adversarial AI, right? We all know that. And, the, and you know, people are attacking AIs. And, and as Tom said, it's easier to be an attacker than a defender. What do you think is missing? What do you think is needed? Or do, or do, we, or do you think we have everything we do need in terms of these, these frameworks and governance standards? No, I think it's, it's an evolving problem. And a lot of it is also centered around what we understand about where models fail. So it could be an adversarial attack or it could just be, you know, models are brittle. A lot of these systems are fairly, still fairly brittle. And so I think one of the, the focus areas has to be around understanding those those failure points a little bit better. And I think that there are plenty of the the efforts that I mentioned already, either on the resource research resource side or the, the research institutes that are really building up around these problem sets. I think there are a lot of good people tackling those problems, but there's, there's a lot of work to be done, I think, in understanding where and how and under what circumstances models fail and for what reasons, so that we better understand on the attack side how to defend and also how to deal with potential failures that don't even come from, from attacks or just incidental or accidental in the course of, of model use itself. Dave, hey, what are your thoughts on that? What, what's missing? What don't we have right now? Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. So I have to talk from from my my perspective, right? It's, it's my perspective, right? So I'm under management, right? I'm when it comes to the responsibility to implement, when it comes to responsibility to manage effectively, that's that's where I have to live. I do not work on the auspices of the academics. I do not work on the auspices of the theoretical, right? So DHS science and technology lives and dies in that space. I feel that there has not been a great feedback loop. I think that the academic community is working very hard to identify what they feel is the most appropriate guidance to provide, standards to provide, et cetera. And the operational side of things, the management side of things is working hard to comply and to meet the expectations of, I am still looking for that feedback loop to where the academic community is plugged in enough to the operational side of things to where we are looking at the real application of technology, not necessarily the the academic understanding of 
the potential for technology, right? So what is that feedback loop and how do we start looking at the lessons learned we have today around the technology and the problems we have today with the technology to reinforce the academic research in the future, um, not necessarily a concept of the guidance is out there. Let's let's put that now on, on the shelf and work on the next guidance. Like I think it needs to evolve. There needs to be a feedback loop. And I think that the operational side of government and, and building technology needs to be one of the most important pairs of requirements and data to the academic community. And, and it needs to be in a big old loop there. I really like that. I think I think that is really, really important because you get, well, you know this, as, as I do. I mean, the, the academics can go off and write papers, but that doesn't mean it's actually influenced by actual use cases, right? And then the, that therefore becomes very hard to adopt by the user community. Have you seen any, um, hi, Megan, real quick. Have you seen any examples where this, where you have, where you do have that kind of feedback? Any, have you ever seen that? Like where I, I need it or where it's working well? Where, where it's working where, well. Where, uh, where, have you seen it working well? Facial recognition, a thousand percent. It is one of the areas where I have personally seen those, the academic community around science and technology, working with NIST, working with the components to develop, to run assessments, to look at the vendor community and, and turn that into guidance. Like it has been incredibly effective. I want that in all areas. I want that in all areas, Reggie. Got it. Roger that. Okay. Megan, my apologies. No, not at all, Dr. Brothers. This is a great panel and appreciate all the questions coming in from the audience. I've got a quick one for Mr. Laramore. Someone wanted to know, would an agency like DHS benefit from planning, soliciting, and awarding training contracts, excuse me, focus on leveraging industry expertise within the AI ML talent pool to help train and develop the DHS workforce? Is that something you're looking at? It's not something... It's, it's an idea. It's not something we are actively pursuing. You know, I, I tend to question is the right approach to look at AI and ML as a training concept in itself, or do we need to do a better job of figuring out how AI relates to law enforcement, how AI relates to grants management, emergency management, how AI relates to the immigration life cycle, and, and start making sure that we are introducing AI ML topics there on the mission side not just on the technicals. Jury's still out, right? We have, we do have from a acquisition lifecycle perspective, there are some kind of, you know, classes that, that can be provided through DAU for, for AIML, but it's, it's not a requirement. It's not a standard. You know, there, we do not have a readily, readily available repository of, of training that you can go onto our, you know, learning management system and, and, and go kind of learn at your leisure. Doesn't exist now. It's a partnership with the chief learning officer, the chief human capital officer, and it is an idea. It is not something that uh, I am I am leading or something that we have committed for the foreseeable future. Good Great, question. Thank you. Yeah. And then this is a question I think all of our panelists might want to have a chance to answer. But, you know, someone was asking, where does the U.S. rank globally in terms of AI investment? And what specific areas should Congress be focused on in the near term to ensure global competitiveness in the future? And then also, you know, what federal agencies are leading the way on AI and R&D in particular, and what agencies may need a boost? So I will leave you with that. 
question and I've got a couple more if there's time. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide a, a snarky response and then I'll let Shadi speak. I'm sure she has got a lot more of the global knowledge, but you will find out very soon because very shortly after the AIML executive order came out, GAO instituted a CFO Act agency-wide audit on you know AIML, which includes kind of understanding the cost in the various areas. So we already do have an idea of all of the use cases that we use across the Department of Homeland Security. That is a active area of trying. And again, it's, it's mapping the technology readiness level to the actual development work, how much time is spent on R&D versus actually, you know, implementing a technology. So it, it is, I don't think that we can, I can today pinpoint a number. We have the ability to generate a number, but we're, we're still, you know, working with GAO to develop what's the model to actually calculate that cost for AIML. And then I'll let you, I'm sure she's got way more knowledge on government-wide. Yeah, I just wanted to, I think, you know, while the U.S. is still a world leader in AI in a lot of ways, there is definitely a need to keep keep kind of pushing on this, particularly for the challenges we mentioned today, like workforce. That's both, you know, hiring and workforce development for teams that don't necessarily have or need to have the, the full technical skills, but need to be aware of how AI is implemented in their realms and their in their kind of portfolios. So there's there's plenty there that that is still forthcoming. I think in general, you know, research, innovation, a lot of that is, is still taking place here. The policy and the governance is evolving. So there's a lot of work to do there. But I think trying to pinpoint by amounts maybe may not be the, the best way to look at it. I think particularly there's, you know, the potentially open source, scalable, free systems that are very impactful. So we're not really thinking you screw it through the lens of pure dollar amounts. I think we have to think through impact first and foremost, and then think through, you know, are there additional resources that need to be, you know, added to that equation? Or what does that look like? Does it even need to be on the technical side? Or are we, you know, are we spending the right resources to make sure our lawyers are, you know, our policy writers and, and other folks in those larger systems are ready and, and can do their work incorporating an AI system effectively? Well, just wanted to, Jump in on this. It's the question of global competition and AI is a very, very interesting one. You know, a reference book is AI superpowers, right? I think most of most of us have, have read it. It's been kind of a standard work. I mean, it looks right now as though it's the US and China that are in the pole positions on capabilities in the AI area. The European Union certainly has a lot of capability. I think that our leading companies, whether it's you know AWS, Google, others, our research capabilities on AI and delivering AI at scale is probably unmatched. On the other side of the ledger, China has done an impressive job in the commercialization of AI using AI capabilities in e-commerce, right? They've been able to get the benefit of a market of 700 you know, million folks that are really on the cutting edge of using technology for services of a, of a very basic kind, right? You know, getting food delivered, taxis, what have you. And the Chinese have really done an excellent job of leveraging AI in those settings. Uh, you know, there's a $30 trillion opportunity on AI on a global scale. And so a lot of market cap opportunities are there for all companies. And I think it's really around continuing to win that race. It's going to be vital in terms of our national competitiveness. And so that's where a partnership with government really comes in and continuing to double down on investment in R&D and universities that 
you know, throughout the history of our country has delivered so much value and innovation. You wouldn't have Intel today had it not been for the NASA program early and the need for, you know, chips that can operate very quickly. Megan, I was gonna, I was just gonna add. I was gonna mention the same book because that that's a great book. Yeah, superpowers. But I was also gonna mention Georgetown CSET Center for Center for Security and Emerging Technology. They have a lot of papers. They've done a lot of work looking at competitiveness, and that would be that's another resource. Great. Well, I think we've got about two minutes left, so I'll leave you with one maybe quick. If you have quick thoughts on it, that would be helpful. And then, Dr. Brothers, I'll let you kind of wrap up and get the final thoughts from your panel. Um, but we did have a couple questions on just the tie-in between AI and zero trust. And I realize that's probably a whole topic in and of itself, but I don't know if Tom or Mr. Laramore, you have just a couple of, of quick thoughts on, on what the nexus is between zero trust and AI. So, you know, just very quickly, when we talk about leveraging AI ML technology for zero trust, I mean, zero trust itself is a concept. It's like saying, you know, well, you know, how has it affect your, your network or your data? And, and the idea is AI ML can be used for all those places, right? So when we talk about tagging data, right, for a sensitivity, right, and, and how it needs to be protected, AI ML application. A thousand percent. Absolutely. When we talk of network and observability and telemetry data, AI, ML, being able to ingest all of that data happening on your network real time and actually start making proactive decision making. Again, AI, ML can be leveraged for all of those points. When we talk about device management, et cetera, like we have already seen, I mean, I, 10 years ago, I was getting briefs from various companies starting to apply AI, ML practices to how they're doing endpoint management, right? So we are already leveraging AI, ML when it comes to cybersecurity and zero trust. It's just whether or not it fits into that OMB bucket that says all of these things need to get done. I guess what I'll do is, let, let, uh, given the time, let all of you give, have a couple of moments just for, for last thoughts, things that things that you either gleaned or that you didn't have a chance to say. Tom, let's, talk, let's start with you. Well, again, thanks for the opportunity to take part in this really great panel. It's been a pleasure. Technology has a way of exceeding the bound of current policy. And uh, that's a challenge that exists today. It's a challenge that existed 30 years ago. So I think the burden is on private sector and government policymakers to continue thinking about technology innovations and continue thinking about ways to update policies to keep up in a way that's responsible, fair, balanced, that, you know, drives innovation, but also protects equities. And so, you know, that's just something that requires looking at best practices. Uh, looking globally, seeing what's working, and then being willing to, you know, break things and start new things and continuing to just adapt. Tom, and this, all of these uh, burdens are that much more relevant in an AI world. Thanks, Tom. Shani? Yeah, especially at the intersections, that's where we're going to see a lot of the critical work being done. So people who are trained in the law and in technology, or at least enough to understand that overlap space, policy and technology, not just one side or the other. I think that interdisciplinary approach and process and training is going to be really important. But really appreciate the time today and, and my panelists and, and Dr. Brothers. So thank you. The only other thing I wanted to say is I'm proud to announce that I think starting on Monday of this week, the CTO office at DHS headquarters has created a emerging technologies branch. So it's kind of a, a real commitment 
to providing governance and oversight on these technologies for the safe and effective use of, of AIML, zero trust, customer experience, all of these emerging technology and concepts. So really excited to announce that. That's great, thanks. Just in closing thoughts, listen, great panel. Thank you so much for your insights and comments. I'd love to keep the conversation going, but uh, over you, Megan, thanks again. Thank you for tuning in. You can follow HSDF The Podcast on any major podcast platform. Visit hsdf.org to learn more about the Homeland Security and Defense Forum.